This is Digital Health Today, episode 16. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators, and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Greetings and welcome back to another episode of Digital Health Today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall. A new year is upon us, and I'm confident that 2017 is going to be a great year. After enjoying some time off with family over the December holidays, I'm already looking forward to the 2017 conference season. I'll be bringing you more information on some of these events in future episodes, but if you're in a hurry and want to see what's coming up already, check out our events page on the website. Head over to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash events and take a browse through. There's even a feature there where you can add those events directly into your Google or Apple calendar. So make sure you check out that feature and take advantage of that. It makes it very simple to keep your, your information organized. And if you're organizing an event, you can tell us about it right there through a link on that page. So digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash events. One meeting I'm definitely looking forward to is the CES, or the conference formerly known as the Consumer Electronics Show. It's the 50th year, and that's being held in Las Vegas on the 5th to the 8th of January. So coming up very soon, And there will be a slew of technology that I'll be able to tell you all about. Plus, there's also a conference within the conference. I'll be attending the Digital Health Summit, so I'm looking forward to catching up with some of my friends and the speakers there. In fact, one of the upcoming guests is going to be chairing one of the panels of the Digital Health Summit. Dr. Daniel Kraft is coming up on a future episode. Uh, He's with Singularity University. He's the founder of Exponential Medicine, and he'll be out there. So I'm looking forward to his session on precision medicine. There are going to be a ton of companies out there, from artificial intelligence and big data to virtual reality and wearables. I'll be speaking to many of the companies and speakers in attendance, and I'll have some great things to share from this meeting. So let's make sure we connect. If you haven't done it yet, now's the time. Take a minute to subscribe to our digital health community through our website. It only takes a minute. In fact, it probably takes only about 15 seconds, and it's free to do. Not only does it put you in the company of other leaders and innovators who are working to make a difference in healthcare, but it also gives you access to special content and resources that we create beyond the scope of this podcast. So do it now, not if you're driving, but when it's safe, jump on and visit digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash join and join the global tribe of health tech innovators. And I'll let you in on a little secret. In 2017, we have some great exclusive content and resources in development just for the members of our digital health community. So be sure to sign up to get more information about that when it's ready. I can't say anything more about it now, but trust me, there's some cool things coming up and I'd really like you to be a part of it. Digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash join. Now, if you've been following the world of implantable sensors, you've probably heard about endotronics. Based outside Chicago, Endotronics is developing a sensor that can be implanted just outside the heart in the pulmonary artery, and it's used to measure pressure. It's being designed for use by people suffering from congestive heart failure, or CHF, and the goal of the technology is to predict and help prevent future adverse cardiac events. My guest today is Harry Rowland, the co-founder and CEO of Endotronics. Dr. Rowland has led the company's operations, strategy, and technology development since the start in 2007, and he's led the charge to raise the millions of dollars required to get this kind of technology off the ground. I've known Harry for several years now, and for full disclosure, I've had the opportunity of working with him and the rest of the talented co-innovators that he brought together both inside and outside Endotronics. In this episode, Harry shares how the connected technology can be used not just inside the body, but as part of a complete healthcare ecosystem that can help extend and improve people's lives. Let's tune into the conversation with Harry Rowland. Harry, thanks very much for joining me on the program, and welcome to the show. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. 
Harry, listen, I've told the listeners a little bit about your work. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what got you to where you are today? Sure. Yeah, my background is really at the intersection of advanced technologies and startup businesses. So I have a PhD in mechanical engineering, a master's degree in economics, and have really always been interested in startups. Uh, so as I was finished up my graduate degree, I got uh, interested in healthcare startups for things that we are working on. And through really primary market research and getting out there and talking to physicians, I happened to meet a very innovative heart surgeon who was interested in wireless pressure monitoring. So we ended up uh, teaming up, founded Enotronics back in 2007. And now we're really all about uh, advancing the treatment of heart failure and extending clinical care into the patient's home. And so we do this with a wireless pressure sensor that goes inside the patient's heart in their pulmonary artery. And then we surround the patient with systems and solutions so that we can communicate data from their home to the clinician and really proactively manage the patient and their challenge with heart failure. You just gave me a lot there. So let me start to pick that apart. Let's go back to uh, to what you were doing. You said you uh, got an undergraduate degree, you got a graduate degree. You studied at Georgia Tech, right? Yeah, undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara, and then a graduate at Georgia Tech. And I did some visiting research at Sandia Labs in New Mexico, and then uh, Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. Yeah, well, I studied in Santa Barbara as a college student. That must be a terrible place to live. I can just imagine how how horrible that that would be at that point in your life. But uh, <laughs> it's an amazing place. It is an amazing so. place. I don't know why you ever left. And then you went to Georgia Tech, and and you got interested in entrepreneurship, and you were studying nanotechnology. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you know, even an undergraduate at Santa Barbara, so I was doing you know starting to get into research and MEMS, so microsensors, microfabrication. And really realized at that stage that, you know, I wanted more advanced training in the technology. So that's what attracted me to the program at Georgia Tech. So, I yes, I left Paradise, I left Santa Barbara, went to Georgia Tech. And then we really got very interested in, in not just microfabrication, but nanofabrication. How can we, you know, make small devices reliably in polymers and fundamental material properties associated with that? So that's how we got started. And it's been a fascinating field. And I've always kind of had an eye for how can we apply this next? And so that's kind of real, really where I have a lot of interest in. And it's kind of seeing near term applications. Whereas if you get into nanotechnology and things like that, you can really be doing fundamental research that's years in the making. And like so many entrepreneurs that have decided to take on challenging projects in the healthcare space, you've also been touched by some healthcare issues that perhaps prompted you to try to find some better solutions. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I probably like many entrepreneurs really start with a fascination in technology. So we were just really amazed around what we could do with nanotechnology and then what we could do with uh, wireless pressure sensing as we started to focus in healthcare applications. And then it became real personal as I got more into the startup and endotronics. So my grandfather ended up getting heart failure and really advanced heart failure. And then he was the really a prototypical class three unstable heart failure patient who was, you know, getting great care, but couldn't stay out of the hospital. So it became a real challenge that changed the life of my family in helping care for him. And I really got to see firsthand or well, third hand, firsthand, but really directly how this disease can impact patients, uh, the lives around those patients and the healthcare system uh, in general. So that really, as you kind of start to get in tough times with startup it's very motivating to know that, you know, you really are doing something important and you can have an impact. And so uh, that has been with me since. So what drove you to make the connection from what you were studying, 
when you were working on your PhD at Georgia Tech to realizing that what you were studying in terms of microfabrication and MEMS, that that would have an application in congestive heart failure? What made that connection? So the work that I was doing was not directly linked to what Endotronics is doing now. So certainly I was exposed to the technologies in my research. And I think a lot of people coming out of advanced technology degrees or PhDs in particular really kind of are fascinated by the work they're doing and thinking they're going to go, you know, use exactly that background into what they're doing next. But in reality, once you kind of get out in the open market, open world, you know, it's more the technology base and kind of your method of problem solving that you end up applying to uh, to other technologies. So with that as a backdrop, as we were kind of going out and looking at applications of the technology we were working on, we were kind of steering towards maybe and robotic manipulators, so micro manipulators for robotic surgery, things like that. And it was only through doing primary market research, we really discovered uh, more pressing needs and more pressing opportunities. And so that's when we started to transition away from what we worked on in my PhD days and into what Endotronics is today. So we kind of went from a technology-based approach to a market needs-based approach. And then what are the right technologies and teams to put in place around finding the right solution? So to put this in context a little bit, the year's about, what, 2006 when this was going on? So 2006, I was transitioning out of graduate school. And 2007, February 2007 is when I met my co-founder. And we ended up launching the company in June of 2007. And what was the idea at that stage? What we, You founded a company, you started a company, you've met a co-founder. What were you aiming to do at that stage? What was your ambition? So kind of early 2007, it was really about bringing our two backgrounds together. My co-founder is a heart surgeon, Anthony Nunez, and he had been fascinated with wireless pressure sensing. So as I met him, I was working on something a little different, and then we decided to, to join forces. We both really started thinking about uh, ways that we can do uh, wireless pressure sensing perhaps better than uh, what was being done out there. There was a lot of activity in the space. And then really, really where we started to, to grab traction was thinking about bringing in themes of mobility and ubiquitous computing, which were you know starting to become prevalent in the, the 2007 time period, really bringing those concepts to the field of implantable wireless pressure sensing and really data anywhere healthcare. So Endotronics has a lot of strings to its bow. The main focus of the technology of the of the business is really around the patented sensor that you've created that goes inside the pulmonary artery. Can you give us, uh, for all the listeners out there, I, I'm obviously familiar with the business. We've, we've met some time ago and I've done some work with you, so I, I know uh, a bit about it. For, for all the listeners out there, can you explain a little bit about the, what the problem is and what the, the current standards are, uh, standards of care? Sure. Yeah. So you'll, of course, correct me as I go through this, but I'll start with the disease itself. So advanced heart failure patients. So th- these are patients who many years ago have probably already had a heart attack or a bypass procedure. They might have had a stent put in place. They, they have a pacemaker. And so they've been living with advanced heart disease for some time. And the heart is continuing to uh, to struggle to keep up with the demands of the body. So the pump, the heart as a function of the pump is is feeding oxygenated blood throughout the body. And eventually with heart failure, there's been enough damage to the heart over time that it's just struggling to keep up. It can't pump enough oxygen or oxygenated blood to feed the end organs of the body. So when you get into advanced heart failure, you start to classify the disease based on really exercise capacity. So Dan, if you and I had uh, heart failure, we're sitting here talking to each other, then we can get up and walk to the car and not really experience any difficulty. We're probably a class two heart failure patient. 
But if you and I were both sitting here and then we had to go, you know, go to the car to go to a, a lunch meeting and really that act of walking to the car is difficult. We're having trouble breathing then. That's when we're a class three patient. And then if we were sitting here on the phone talking and kind of having trouble really just making it through the conversation or breathing, um, difficulty, uh, uncomfort, just sitting here on the phone, that's when we're probably a class four patient. So class four patients are the ones who, who are on the list probably for a transplant or getting a ventricular assist device, which is essentially an artificial heart. But the class three patient is before that, and they're really at the edge of stable or unstable. And their heart is struggling to keep up. And then if you have any exacerbation of that heart with a little amount of exercise or stress, that's where, you know, that's where they become unstable and need more support. So it's kind of that's the patient that we're looking at. Uh, the class three patient, that's the patient who is frequently hospitalized. So more than once or twice a year for many of these patients. And those hospital stays, when they come in, they're really traumatic events. Uh, the patient is struggling to breathe. It's almost like they're, they're drowning in the fluid that's in their lungs. Hospital stay of, of five to 10 days. They're discharged. And during that hospital stay, there's really no new procedures that, uh, that, that you're oftentimes doing for these patients because they've already had the procedures. It's really about up titrating their medications, trying to, to get the fluid out of their lungs and out of their body that the, you know, the body has taken on because it's not able to keep up with pumping uh, everything efficiently. So, and then when they're, when they're discharged, they're often not at the optimal state and they're trying to rebalance and yeah. let me, let, let me stop you there. Let me stop you there, Harry. So, so tell me how many people are affected by this, uh, U S numbers or global numbers, whatever you have to hand. So it's, it's a huge problem. So around 20 million patients, over 20 million patients worldwide, if we look at the U S there's around 6 million U S patients with heart failure. And then if we look at the the class three patient population, that's around one to, to one and a half million patients in the U.S. alone. And you were just talking about the, the sort of frequent flyers that these patients often are, is that they're, you know, they're going into the hospital, they're, uh, they're getting titrated, they're being discharged back to their own homes, and, and often they get readmitted very soon thereafter. Do you have an idea of how much that's costing the healthcare system? It's significant. It, it's a huge expense to the healthcare system. So again, in, the, in just looking at the U.S., uh, heart failure is the number one cost to Medicare. 70% of the cost of treating heart failure are due to hospitalizations. And, you know, 45% of all hospitalizations in the U.S. for heart failure are these class three patients. So I, I think the direct cost, direct and indirect cost to, for heart failure to Medicare around $32 billion every year. It's, it's a huge, huge issue. So the technology that you've developed is basically intended to do what? It's intended to take a reading. And why is that reading important? And, and how are those readings being gathered if they don't use your product? Sure. So these patients who are, are at home and at that, at that unstable level, you know, they're, they're, their body is changing over time. And, and they don't really have any specific symptoms of heart failure that they can rely on to know okay, is my heart failure getting worse or is it, or do I have a cold? So right now things are just managed by signs and symptoms and those really don't show up for heart failure until too late in the game till you're, you're just about to go to a hospital event. So it's people looking at weight, trying to see if they have swelling in the ankles, th things like that are what they've been doing to try to tr try to manage these patients outside the hospital historically. So what we do is we provide a direct measure of the one the one metric that really drives disease status in 90 95% of these patients and that's looking at what are the pressures inside the heart 
How do they change day to day, week to week over time? And really, pulmonary artery pressures, which is the metric we measure, those end up rising slowly over time, several weeks to a month in advance of an emergent heart failure event. So if we can see that every day, we can course correct to that early with just up titration of a medication that the patient is already on, we can prevent that heart failure from worsening, we can get that patient on track early, we can improve their quality of life before they have to go to the hospital. So the idea is take the the readings more frequently because right now in order to get this reading a patient needs to basically the standard of care is to be taken into the hospital sedated catheterized have a a pressure sensor inserted into their pulmonary artery and then that's a one-time shot is that is that correct yeah that's right and you know one-time catheterization event for a snapshot look at the body really doesn't add you know too much clinical utility in terms of chronic management it's helpful in that acute intensive care setting but after that you know those pressures change as soon as the patient uh, leaves the table so you know there's really uh, not too much value in chronic management if you're only getting a catheter based measurement you know once in three years five years or whatever it is so what we enable is is we do that, that catheterization and we essentially leave a pressure sensor behind. And so anytime on demand the patient wants to take a measurement of their pulmonary pressure, we can do that anytime, anywhere. So so now we we enable we provide the tools to the patient and the clinician to access that information for the rest of the patient's life and really drive treatment decisions based on what is the patient's heart doing. And so really having that clinical level of insight while the patient is at home outside of the hospital. So I think what's beautiful about this is that you're, you're, you know that the data is important. You know it's difficult to get. And ironically, that the process of going through to get that data under the current standard of care is a very traumatic, invasive procedure that gives you a one-time snapshot. You only do that on the sickest patients. So you're taking the sickest patients and exposing them to this, this medical procedure. But when you started to think about this technology and this solution, um, you know, falling in love with that problem that you were trying to solve and, and looking at different ways that you could address it, you were doing that at the same time that the world was shifting its focus when the iPhone was being introduced. Did that, did that sort of mobility play into your thinking as you were trying to say, how do we solve this healthcare problem and the world is going to a more mobile mindset? Mobility was absolutely a theme that we were thinking of. So, I mean, just the world and the technology development space at that time, everything was about mobility. So really, when we approached the problem of, okay, we know we need to do these in-body pressure measurements, uh, the challenge that we put forth to ourselves is, how do we take those readings from a sensor in the body with a device that's mobile and easy to use for a patient? So it was kind of those concepts were really drove the innovation behind endotronics and created the, the core technology of the company today. So I imagine uh, for the first few years, the real key was validating that, that you could create a sensor that could work in that highly intense environment, that, that very harsh environment in the pulmonary artery, and actually get the signal that is that you need. So uh, was that really the focus for the first four or five years? And, and obviously it continues to be a primary focus. Uh, it, it's, it's where the whole business is focused around. But was that really the only thrust that you had for the first few years of the business? I'd say, yeah, for the first few years of the business, it was around, it was technology based. And then from technology based, we, you know, gradually moved to solution based and figure out more and more, how does our technology meet the needs of the market? And then what do we need to add to, say, the base technology uh, to make sure we really are meeting the needs of the market? So early on, it was definitely 
focused on the technology. So this is something that, you know, not many groups had done before. And certainly in the, our approach with a, a mobile reader, the, the on-demand ability to take these measurements, the technology did not exist and, and still does not to this day. So we were focused on really developing that core capability and bringing technology out there. And then as we evolved that technology and it matured more and more, we started to think more, okay, how does this technology fit into the marketplace? So what are going to be the needs of the patients in, in using this technology? And then even beyond that, so a patient taking a reading, having the device working, that's one thing, but we need to make sure that the information provided from that device is acted upon to really deliver to the therapeutic benefit to the patient. So how do we make sure the clinician on the back end has the tools and systems they need so that they can proactively manage uh, this patient and a thousand other patients like this patient. So we started to really think about broadening uh, our solution and thinking about it from, from end to end. So from the time that the patient gets the implant all the way to a heart failure clinic is managing a thousand of these patients and they're looking at adding a hundred more patients like this next year. How do we make sure we're providing the tools and solutions so that this care, which we believe is critically important to improve the quality of life of these patients with heart failure, how do we set it up so that more patients can benefit from it? So we, we started to move a lot more beyond the core technology and, and the device side into how do we wrap solutions around the device to really unlock its power? Well, it's perfect timing. I mean, really, the, you, you've, you've expanded from being a medical device uh, into an entire care platform. Um, trying to give all the engagement tools to all the stakeholders along the way. So obviously, when you got started, you needed capital. Where did you go? How did you get started with finding capital for your business? Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, capital raising for startups, I think, and particularly startups in healthcare with regulated devices, implantable devices, financing is very, very difficult. Dan, you know this well. We, we've shared a lot of uh, pain over this story. So, but starting out early on, you know, it, it's all about networking. Uh, going to support groups such as incubators, uh, and then through incubators, you get involved into different business plan competitions or, or grant mechanisms. And then ultimately, it's about finding your, your early angel investors, which for us were clinicians. So people who know the space that you're going after and know the promise, and then moving from your, your individual angels into more organized angel groups, and then progressing to venture capital. But early on, it's really individuals progressing towards angel capital groups. It's such a hard sell too, because you're coming up with a new technology to solve a problem that's an existing problem, and there is a way of solving it, but you're, you're trying to propose an entirely new approach, number one, with the technology, and number two, with the tools around it, with the, the digital health tools that support the use of that technology and the, the efficacy of it. And then there's obviously a lot of un unanswered questions in terms of uh, the reimbursement and the approvals and things like that that need to go through. So uh, how much of your time do you think you spend fundraising? Don't ask that question. Dan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll edit that out. All right. Well, we're, yeah. no, that's okay. So we, uh, you know, we we closed a, a major financing in July this year, which is uh, is really game changing for our company. So uh, we we have the support of world class investors to really commercialize this technology. So so now. Uh, I'm spending a lot less time fundraising because we were we successfully completed that milestone. But uh, if you ask me that question any time uh, two months ago in the five years prior, the answer is you're raising money all the time. So uh, and, and you know my answer will change too because we you know we're not going to be cash flow positive at the end of this raise, so we're always going to be needing more capital. But now it's about executing, advancing the story, 
And as we're doing that and the market's growing, uh, it should be uh, we should be in a position to attract a, a later stage capital as well. Well, I think that your experience is really one for a lot of other innovators to heed in, in that you really need to be passionate and committed to making this work because um, this is... Commitment is a great word. So, you know, commitment and perseverance because it's, it's going to take longer than you think. It's going to be harder than you think. When you think it can't get any worse, it can. And, you know, you need to... If the idea is right and the people are right, it's worth uh, waking up tomorrow and, and, and putting your shoulder to it and keep going. And, you know, I, I do think that the, the margin between success and failure is razor thin. So not all good ideas and good technology and good companies are going to make it just because it, it just doesn't happen. Circumstances conspire against you. But, but when you're in the seat, when you believe in what you're doing, you know, you keep pushing at it and maybe things will break your way one day. So uh, you got to be committed and persistent and you got to believe. Yeah, you got to keep the faith. You absolutely have to keep the faith. And especially, you know, in your role as a co-founder and CEO where, you know, you're you're leading an organization to do things that have never been done before, that optimism and spirit is contagious. So uh, I applaud all that you've done in you know, a significant number of years. So it's been, what, 10 years total that you've been doing this, right? You started in 2007? Yeah, that's right. So it'll be, uh, it's actually nine, but uh, thanks for putting the decade on it. Uh, <laughs> well, counting 2007. It'll be a decade so, soon. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's a long road. You know, we certainly thought, you know, we would be, we'd be further along than we are now. And, but the world moves, things change, and you just have to react to it. So I, I guess I'll kind of do two quips here, Dan, as we, since we talked about belief and persistence and it's, uh, I'd say, you know, why do startups succeed? And fundamentally, it's because they believe they can. And so a lot has to happen after that. But if you don't believe you can, you're never going to make it. So you got to keep that belief through, through the whole process. And then, then why do startups fail? It's because they run out of money. So, you know, you got to keep the belief, but you got to make sure you keep the funding going in so that you have the resources you need to execute. And so that's a, that's a tough balancing act particularly in uh, in med tech where the you know timelines to approval the cash flow positive things like that are so long and so resource intensive yeah and you've you've taken on one of the most challenging parts uh, of the regulated device market I mean you've got an implantable that that you need to do a tremendous amount of testing on and validation to, to prove that it's safe and effective for the purpose so t let's talk about sort of your global strategy from here nine years on, uh, you've been uh, you've done a variety of uh, of pigs and lots of uh, bench tests and uh, all sorts of different studies and validation. Where do you go from here? Now you've you've raised some money. What's next? So what's next is getting in the clinical stage right now. So you know we're looking at I call it two years from now, having a CE mark approval and having our IDE approval to start our pivotal phase. So in in between now and the end of two years, it's really all about making sure our device is ready for our our first patients. Uh, proving the device is safe and accurate in our first set of patients. And really, it's about a study of around 30 to 50 patients showing that the device is doing everything that we intend it to do. Uh, patients are having a good experience with it. Clinicians are having a good experience with it and really demonstrating in the in a pilot phase that, you know, we're ready uh, to take this to the next level and really expand its its use in the market. If you could go back nine years ago and and have one thing that you wish you knew then that you know now what would that be one thing only one thing well there can be more uh, than one thing but <laughs> i imagine you've learned lots of lessons along the way is there something that you you really think gosh you know that that really caught me out i'd like to make sure that other people learn from that or think about that as they get started 
Well, I'll tell you some advice that really stuck with me early on, which I think, you know, positioned us for this, you know, success so far in the nine years. And maybe if I even more rigorously held to it early on, it would have been better and better. But I think we've adhered to the principle is surround yourself with good people and, and go out there and get experienced help. So it's a it's a huge project. You mentioned we got into something that was very difficult regulatory environment, everything that we're taking on. We didn't know all the trials and tribulations we would face. And so getting ourselves surrounded by experienced people who've done things before, have built companies before, getting as much advice and experience from others around you as possible will help make you stronger. Uh, and it won't guarantee success, but the more you can learn from others' experience and avoid mistakes that others have done before, the better off you're going to be. So I think that's kind of one of the overriding themes, that and and just putting your story out there, networking, meeting new people, because you got to build a team and you got to build a program and a vision. And you need a lot of people to help you on that journey. And by the very nature of what you're trying to do, you can't possibly know everything you're going to come up against because you're, you're creating a brand new technology. So the environment by which to measure that and regulate that sometimes isn't fully formed. It's, it's coming up with, with its own ways of evaluating what it is that you're working to do. And, and that's obviously a very fast-paced environment as well in some, in some regards uh, in terms of what's happening with mobile technology and some of the things that you want to do from the connectivity piece. That certainly is a very different story in 2016 than it was in 2007, 8, and 9. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of talking about things that you can't uh, predict or expect uh, around the time in 2007, 2008, you know, 2007 iPhones coming out and you're like, wow, you know, mobile computing is going to be everywhere. Big data is going to be everywhere. All the health systems are going to be, you know, fully integrated with this stuff. So, you know, our, our thinking back then was, you know, this wave is coming. It's going to be adopted. Things are going to be put in place soon. And our data from our, our pulmonary artery sensor system, we're going to be able to plug into really a well-oiled machine uh, that has, you know, clinical decision support and, and all things like that. You know, that whole world was evolving so fast and we were expecting things to be adopted and industry challenges to be worked out in advance of us. Well, you know, fast forward a couple of years, everybody realized, boy, it's, it's kind of hard to implement all this stuff. And then we ended up realizing that how our data gets used really affects the entire success and failure of our company. And until, you know, that's worked out, we have to own that challenge as well. So that's kind of when I talked about, you know, looking at not just our technology solution, but the systems and solutions around that to, to unlock the power of our technology, we realized we had to take more of that on. And so that's something that, you know, eight, nine years ago, we couldn't have predicted, but you have to adapt to, you know, the, the challenges of the marketplace that you're in. Yeah, and I think you've done a great job in in creating the story around what it is that you're doing because you know that the sensor itself, once that gets implanted, it's invisible. Um, there's nothing that the patient really ever sees or engages with. It's all that external factor, and and you've done a great job. I know working with Stuart Carton at Carton Design and creating that bedside reader stand and uh, being able to create the engagement of the user as well as the clinician that's actually reviewing that information, whether it's heart failure nurse or cardiologist or what have you. And that, that's something I've, I've seen in the time that we've worked together that you've obviously expanded that. And it's very, and I think the market is ready for that sort of solution. Yeah. You know, we, you know, Stuart Carton's group does great work and they really helped us hone our thinking around that patient experience. And, you know, we're, we were all a, a, a bunch of technology folks here and not really connected to consumer design, product design, and understanding really that consumer's focus. And so working with a group like uh, Stuart's team really helped to 
to bring that together for us and give direction to the technology development. And, you know, that for us, so we, we have really three operating theaters that we have to be successful in. And in each one, we have to be successful in for the product to work. And our work with Stuart have, so far has really been around the patient's use at home. You know, the patient has to take that reading every day. So we have the information we need to guide their therapy. So that's a critical piece. But there's also an operating theater for us of the, the cath lab and working with the interventional cardiologists and their team to make sure that implantation goes well. And so, you know, that's all at the start and affects everything downstream. So those are two very different theaters. And then we have a third theater, which is the heart failure clinic. How do clinicians work with this information? What's their workflow? How do we integrate with that and provide them tools and support there? And, you know, Stewart's group has also helped us think about that and, you know, his integration with med tech as well as uh, digital health covers all those areas. But, you know, we realized, again, in that theme of, of getting other people to, to help you along the way is we didn't have all the expertise in those theaters and really kind of getting experienced groups out there who have done work in those spaces and help us to be successful in those different areas and then bring that all into one solution, one vision for the company. It, it's a big challenge, but, you know, getting the vision right and the story right, as you said, is a big big part of the challenge. And then once people can kind of see that, then you can kind of start to execute on a plan to to realize that. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of businesses are looking outside the U.S. to try to commercialize their products. Can you give me a little bit of understanding about why it is that you're looking for a CE market, an OUS strategy in advance of the U.S.? I think I know the answer to it, but can you just explain it to the listeners who may not be uh, completely familiar with that environment? Sure. Yeah. So the market for heart failure is it's global. So it is everywhere. And it, we need to develop our product to meet the needs of patients and clinicians in, in a global marketplace. And so in terms of technology development, you know, wherever we, we do our studies, we, we essentially see that we need to get the same data to prove that the device is, is safe and accurate and it's going to be effective in the marketplace. And so just traditionally, when you look at uh, medical device development, a lot of the first 50 patient work, you often do some of that in the U.S., but you're often doing a lot more of that in different parts of the world, whether it's Australia or Europe or South America. You add that with your U.S. patient experience somewhere. And so when we are going after our 30 patient experience for our, our pilot study, it's the same data set that we would need to, to start our next phase in the U.S. as it is, we think, to start our, our post-market surveillance phase in Europe. So with, with our 30 patient data set, we hope to get CE Mark, put us in a position to do Post-market work, so a little more outside the clinical setting and starting to look in a commercial setting. How is our device working in that area? Uh, we hope to do that with the CE mark uh, in Europe. And then in parallel, uh, we're, we're doing pivotal phase work uh, in the U.S. And, and other sites. But it's really about stepwise program development. So first, you're proving the device is safe and accurate on the bench. And in your preclinical setting, then you go out in a, in a smaller segment with a, a small group of patients, really just proving out, is our device ready for the next phase is the delivery system right? Does a clinician want a feature changed? How about the, the patient taking the reading at home? Is there a sound or alarm that they don't like that we need to change? So kind of test it in a small setting, prove that it's ready for the next phase, and then take it to the next phase. And so where we do that clinically, it's going to be international. And going to Europe first to get some of the experience outside of a clinical trial setting, we think is really important to really make sure your device is right when you take it from 100 to 1,000 patients to 10,000 to 30,000 patients. You, you got to do your homework in advance to really make sure the device is ready. And the CE mark process and doing things in a post-market setting are really powerful to do that early. 
Are you going to focus on a particular country as you look into Europe, or are you going to uh, a set of countries? Yes, you know, it's, to it's, be it's determined. Kind of too, yeah, it's too early for us to say <laughs> okay. right now. You know, we're a small company, and so we don't have resources to be effective everywhere. So for us, it's about picking and choosing our battles and making sure that the sites we do select, we can support with a top class effort. We just can't be everywhere all at once. So it's about what collaborative investigators we have, where we think our technology can have the best impact. And again, what we can support and really deliver excellence on. That's great, Harry. Well, listen, I I should have mentioned at the beginning of the program, there's a video that was created, an explainer video that we can embed on the website as well in the show notes for this. So anybody listening can go onto the website and take a look at actually how the product gets implanted and how the reading is is retrieved by the patient when they're at home. So we'll make sure we include that. Harry, There's uh, we're coming up to the end of our time here together. I have a few questions that I'd like to ask all the guests. Do you have a few minutes that you can indulge me? Sure. Great. What's the key advice that you have for other innovators who are working to make a difference in healthcare? That's a good question. Be bold and pushing your idea forward. Be open to getting input on your ideas. And you have to walk that fine line of ignoring the hundred no's you're going to get and continuing to believe in what you're doing, but also doing slight course correction from those no's, learning from them to make sure you're getting to yes at the right time. What's a favorite quote or a saying that motivates you? I'm going to botch it because I don't have it in front of me, but it's definitely a Calvin Coolidge quote about persistence. You know, world is full of geniuses and talent, but the one thing above all that determines success is persistence. Is there a book that you recommend to listeners and why? Yes, many books. I, I like just reading books about stories and seeing how people and teams of people work through struggles. You know, I'll just speak right now. I'm reading a book on coaching and it's uh, it's Pete Carroll's Win Forever. So kind of lessons around how do you organize teams? How do you share a vision? How do you get people rallied behind that and, and really push organizations and just groups of people, individuals to be their very best? Excellent. What technology tool or app would you recommend and why? Skype, because you can connect with everybody around the world. <laughs> uh, I don't have any specific recommendation outside of the you know standard tools that we use. Anything on your phone that you go to a lot? I love Google Maps. Anywhere in the world I am, I, I, I know where I am. I can look at traffic, things like that. So, you know, th- that email, text, th- that's what I do. And we're going to be making a contribution to a charity of your choice. What charity have you selected? And can you tell me a little bit about what they do? So I would look at Heart Failure Society of America or European Society of Cardiology Heart Failure, just really advancing the needs of patients and clinicians in this area. That's what I would select. Excellent. We'll make a contribution. I'll let you know when that's been made. And we'll also include a link to them in the show notes. Harry, listen, I really appreciate you taking time to uh, link up with me and talk to all the listeners and share a, a bit about your story that's taken you over the last nine years to, to get to where you are. I know there's a, a very rosy and uh, optimistic future ahead of you. And I'm really thrilled for you that you've gotten through this most recent fundraising round and you've got a lot of great things in store over the next 12 and 18 months. So I look forward to having you back and keeping listeners posted on your progress along the way. Dan, thank you very much for all that. To the listeners who don't know, thanks for all your help in the years uh, prior to this and, and also helping contribute to setting our vision, helping hone our story. I think you do a great job of that. We're very excited that you're doing this now in this, this podcast. So thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Dr. Harry Rowland from Indotronics. Some amazing work being done by the team there, and I wish them a lot of success as they move towards their first-in-man trials. Check out all the notes and links from our discussion by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 16. While you're there, take a peek around and look at some of the resources that are available online. And if you find this podcast helpful, I'd really appreciate your feedback on iTunes. 
If reviews aren't your thing, then just drop me a quick line to let me know what you think of the podcast and what you'd like to hear next. Email me at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com. Thanks for tuning in. That's it for me today. As always, and until next time, keep on innovating.